trying to get them to understand that, look, that whole daily bread mentality that you brought from Africa has gotten you far. But other immigrant groups are coming in, they're building businesses, they're thriving, and they now have wealth, not just money, but they have wealth that they can now build their generation on moving forward. And they're thriving, not surviving, right? That's the theme is so trying to get African immigrants or older aging immigrants to to say, okay, it's not just about surviving anymore, but how do I thrive? How can I sit back, kick my feet up and say, this is me making it, after my 40 years living here, working, getting a house, building a home, whether I have a job that has retirement or not, how can I get myself to now live comfortably as I age? For the younger ones like us, how can we use our expertise to create more programs and infrastructures and communities where our aging African aunties, uncles, mothers, fathers, whatever, our elders, how can they find a space where they can be able to age and still feel like they are who they are, right? That's the, that's the part, not losing yourself and becoming fully American, but how do we create a space where you still feel as African as you are? You are listening to Concrete Pastures Podcast. I am Nancy Mlemoisisi. Being an immigrant has been one of the most challenging and extraordinary experiences of my life. It inspired me to create a space that allows for myself and others to share our stories as we deconstruct the world's view of immigrant status. We unlock the joys, the laughs, and the bravery that being a dreamer brings. So subscribe and stay a while as we dive into today's episode. This episode is a first. This is a collaboration. And normally with the collaboration, we go on each other's platforms and get interviewed on those platforms. But this time we decided to just use one platform and interview each other that way. It was interesting. I actually left me thinking of all the many things I wanted to say during this conversation. And not for lack of opportunity, but being that I'm a processor, oh, jeez, um, I respond to things later in my head. And um, one of the first things that I thought of after the conversation was Black is transnational. And how important the work Dr. Kilechi Ibe Lambert is doing to bring our community together. After that, I thought this you understand why I'm saying this part later on in the episode. I thought about the conversation I had with Mariam Isa and the, the phenomenal woman from Somalia, the struggle she went through from her country and yet she was able to find strength to forgive and move on. Another thought came, not too long ago, we all experienced COVID. And during that time, all I saw was humanity feeling the pain of one another. It didn't matter what part of the world you were in, we all could feel it. When someone died, when someone got sick, we all felt it. 
And to me, I think that's what being human is without our titles and what we identify as. My hope and dream as Africans and African-American is for us to truly see each other. Here is Dr. Kilechi Ibelobert and me having our conversation. Enjoy. Hey everyone. Hello, oh my God. Hello. How are you? Good. We're good. This is the, this is exciting. Welcome to our crossover episode. Oh my God. I'm excited for this crossover. And it's uh, I think it's, we're both testing the waters as how yeah. this is going to go. So guys, bear with us. Yeah. Concrete Pastures family. This is crossover to Black East Transnational. I love it. Love it. I love what my brother is doing on his side. That's why he's crossing over to us and educating us on what he's doing I'll start with your name. I asked you before, I'll start with your name. You have an hyphen in your name. And it boggled my mind the first time. We met, for anybody who has listened already, we met um, on the Father's Day event that we had. We were all organizing it together with Pasa Pasa, Mo Sibo, and Black is Transnational, and he's here. So um, I'm excited. Yeah. Off of that episode, we are here to get to know the man more. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it was. It was, to it was, us. was. How come yeah. you have a hyphen in your name? Well, yeah. I my name is eBay Lambert, and, and that goes into right when we talk about the um, my black is transnational and what this show is about, and, and going back to your roots. And so, my last name is also tied into that. And so, for me, for those who don't know. Um, I was born in Nigeria and I immigrated here at a very young age and and I essentially identify as a 1.5 um, generation immigrant, um, transnational Nigerian, but I'll talk more about that on this show. But as far as my last name is concerned, uh, so the eBay Lambert's part is essentially, so the Lambert, and it's usually Lambert without the S, but La- but I use we use the S because it's plural for the family, but I, I explain. So Lambert Festus eBay is my grandfather's name. And so the eBay is a, has been shortened for a longer last name. But what essentially happened um, is that there, my family has these like two dynasties. You have like the eBay Godfrey's and the eBay Lambert's. And so the Lambert's part essentially became like children of the hyphenated essentially became eBay Lambert's in sense of anyone who were the descendants of my grandfather, Festus or Lambert Festus eBay essentially became children of eBay, right? So I'm Igbo. My culture is Igbo, east part of Nigeria. And my family live in, in the, the the actual state, Emo uh, state, um, in a village. And so eBay Lambert essentially means like children of eBay. And then I have my cousins who are eBay Godfrey, and they're children, essentially children of Godfrey, right? And so, but they're all part of the eBay and the full name is Ibe Akolam. That's the whole like last name. But they shortened it so that they can then hyphenate it to show who is under which particular dynasty, if you get what I'm saying. Mm. So like, you know, like British house, dy- you know, like house of, you know, it's like house yes, of. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. It's very similar. Very no, similar. I, I, I get it now. I, yeah. I, I, I get it now. Yeah. Wow. You came here from what I've been uh, listening to. You came here 
at the age of eight? Yeah. Well, I just turned, I just turned eight. Yeah. December uh-huh. 97. My daughter is eight. And um, the first time she went to Zambia now, this year she went to Zambia. Her mind was blown. Oh. So I can't imagine you coming from Nigeria to America. How was that for you? Well, I mean, it was... From whatever was, you can remember. Well, I, I can remember it all. <laughs> I, it, I was, you know, I was eight. And first, of course, like most immigrants, touched down in New York. And I was there with some family for a little bit. But then moved to Chicago with my mom. Um, and so that... Uh, was was fun and it, it but it was very interesting uh, because for me I growing up in Nigeria we spoke English and I grew up in a space where the queen's English was encouraged and so for me I didn't have an issue acculturating a little bit easier compared to maybe some of my other contemporaries because they had already kind of gotten me to try to, you know, the, the idea of being more sophisticated is being able to speak that proper English. And to, so I I had to already, the only thing I was missing was just understanding some of the, the slangs, you know, but because I was so young, I was very, I was easy to mold and it was easy for me to be a chameleon. So I never really lost track of my Nigerian accent. I can still, you know, and that's the whole concept of me being transnational was that I never really fully acculturated, but I understood that I could have the best of both worlds. And as I grew up, I started to realize that I was benefiting from both lives. I was able to speak English like the Americans here, but I also, when I was home, I was speaking in um, my native accent and native tongue for to a certain extent. Uh, I never truly learned the, the the native language in Nigeria, which is something that always um, irks at me over the years as I've gotten older and I have children of my own. I wish I knew the language very well. I understand it, but to speak it is a different thing. And so that is um, throughout the course of my experience growing up, I didn't really look it was very difficult for people to really know that I was like Nigerian. I mean, unless like you were really, really Nigerian, like some Nigerians just know, but overall I adapted pretty well. And people would be like, Oh, I didn't know you were Nigerian until you hear my name. And of course, for any young immigrant growing up, you had a phase in your life where you weren't really going by your African name. It wasn't cool back then to be African. So at that point, you know, I was going by, you know, you know, I was going by Kelly in, with my family. Um, then when I got to school, you know, I had got baptized and I said I don't want to change my name to Kenny. Kenneth, my dad's name is Kenneth, so I wanted to go by Kenny. And so um, I went by that through high school. And I got to college, right? And we went, you know, I kind of went back to Kalechi Kelly, but I called it Kells. And so like the people, my cousin actually, who's my roommate in college, um, started calling me Kells and everybody started knowing me as Kells. And so I went through these different iterations of, you know, my identity when I was coming up as this young transnational immigrant, like I was trying to figure out, and it wasn't until I was a senior in in college and grad school that I started to really take more pride in being Kalechi because I understood the meaning of it, understood that it was unique, at least for, for a long period of time, there weren't that many people named Kalechi. So, and then most times, Kalechi is a unisex name, so 
you didn't know most of the time they think it was a girl which is which i've gotten many emails it's like dear ma'am <laughs> <laughs> dear madam you know and so um so but it's always it's always i, I took a lot of i took a lot of pride and i take a lot of pride in my name my african name and so I got to a point where unless you really knew me or unless you were very, very close or we've, we're very um, familiar with one another, call me Kalechi. Um, if you know me very well, you knew me when I was growing up, sure, call me Kels, call me Kelly, whatever the case may be. But moving forward, most of the time I introduce myself as Kalechi and people just have to understand, you know, how to learn how to pronounce it and say it. And um, but yeah, my, my, my experience was just... I would say it was unusual because I didn't have, I didn't consider myself having that same typical immigrant experience that a lot of my, my own guests and um, interviewees have had, you know, even when I got interviewed on the Ponce Ponce, you know, podcast, it was like, I blended so well. So I knew how to kind of navigate and go back and forth. And so I found myself feeling like I can thrive and that's kind of essentially what led me to where I am now with this podcast. And I want to know if there are others out there and how they go about navigating and balancing both worlds, right? Being able to go back, like you just said, your daughter, you know, you were able to t go back. She was able to go back to Zambia, right? And so, like, I'm curious, you know, for for you, just take taking my answer and now asking you a question. Yeah. I'm curious in your situation because you got here... 20 you've been here for about 20 years right since yep. you've grown up in zambia right and so what has your immigrant what has your immigration experience been like for you in terms of what you brought from zambia your connection back to zambia how strong is it how often do you go back how much of an influence is the zambian culture um still present in your day-to-day -day life even though you're living in the U.S. for over two decades? Um, so the Zambian culture is why I actually have the concrete pastures. Mm. Coming here 20 years ago was hard with a lot of challenges, especially landing in New York, um, adjusting to a new culture, learning basically everything from scratch, and in the community that I was received into, they didn't also know much. Not to their fault, they just didn't know. Mm. Whatever they explained to me or whatever they shared with me is what I went by. So, like, for example, I shared this before. Uh, I didn't open up an account until, like, maybe three years of being here because mm. somebody had told me you needed to have a social security number to open up an account. This is from my own little community. But until I did my own research, then I uncovered, you know, this is mm -hmm. how it's supposed to go. Mm -hmm. But with the Zambian culture, oh my God, um, it's everything. My What I brought with me is my core values. Mm -hmm. My culture, yes, it's, it's within me, but my core values is what I brought with me, with my, what my with what my mom had installed with me in me and my grandmother, which is the bottom line, believing in God. I would not survive not being able to reach out to my higher power in in, in times of everything. 
that I've been through here in the 20 years. Um, I would encourage anybody who's coming or who's been, who's here to be, you have to believe in something that's bigger than you to be able to survive outside any country because you go through so many trying times and um, in a foreign land, it crushes you so much. And a lot of the times you don't have support like you would have at home. And the moment, even when you think about that, like, I don't have support, it's even worse for yourself. Um, so in terms of the Zambian culture, Concrete Pasture came uh, in that because I grew up back home. My roots are back home. And I wanted to give back to my Zambian community as this is the life of us immigrants. We highlight immigrant stories on Concrete Pastures. This is the window to the life of what we live, it looks like. Because they see us on Instagram. That day you're looking fabulous and you're looking great. A lot of people think that's the life that we, we are living every single day. Mm-hmm. But that's that's not it. So we're giving real life stories to people, mm-hmm. give them insight, changing their minds as to this is the life that we're living. Mm-hmm. So that's been my... Yeah. It's, 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 you know, and the fascinating thing about it for someone who's from West Africa, um, you know, funny enough, two weeks ago, I think, no, last weekend, this week, yeah, two week, two week, two weekends ago, my oh, wife yeah. and I just went to our first, um, we went to our first wedding and that was not Nigerian or Ghanaian related. <laughs> and so oh, wow. I, it was someone from my, one of my young bros from Cameroon who married a young Zambian woman. Oh, and it was a first time that I've ever seen, and you know, Zambian culture, especially from the bride's side, right? And so it was beautiful, but it just led me to realize Zambian people act right. And so then, of course, talking with you now, I want to know what, like, the challenges. I mean, other other than English, what, what are the main language? Like, you know, is it English? Like, I mean, for those who may not know, because I think we tend to live in the world, especially here in the U.S., uh, where it's very West African dominated. And so yeah. what I want to know a little bit more about, like, where, where was your community? Because we don't, I've never been exposed throughout my years being here to many people from Zambia. So I'm very intrigued as to, what that process was like where where, do you, where is your community and and how can we is it a large one you know how do we get in touch with them how do we connect because that, that i mean that community is no longer because everybody has moved to different states we've moved mm-hmm. on and we've grown but when i came it was a lot of people that had been here longer than me of course i came with my aunt and my aunt and her community we just Got we, we joined her community. So a lot of people had at the time that had been here like five plus years. And from whatever they had learned, the official language in my country is English. So we don't have any language barrier except the same, same similar to you, like the slangs and stuff. That's the only issues we would have. Other than that, we can communicate. The only actually, a lot of things that we get is oh, you speak English, and you feel offended. I used to feel offended a lot of the time. I do speak English, okay? English, yeah. Yeah. So, um, people, I would be surprised that people would be surprised that I speak English. That's the, the part. Like, how, what do you think about us? 
but yeah that community and also how well you speak it right like that's the that's the part that always annoys me you speak very good english that's how they would say it actually but very politely you speak very good english okay uh but our community we did a lot of partying that's the piece that i had to come out of it brought our culture together we played music from Zambia. We cooked. So it would be like maybe once a month. We would come together. We'd go to someone's house. We'd be playing Zambian music. We'd be cooking uh, fish. All kinds of foods from, from Zambia. Or even from here, but cooking it the Zambian way. Because mm-hmm. our foods, basically, it's the same. We just cook differently, different spices, whatever it is. Um, and then we'll just celebrate whatever, someone's birthday or Independence Day. Some, most, sometimes we would go to the mission. We have, uh, in here in New York, we do have the Zambian mission. So we would go there. They don't do parties anymore, but they used to do the parties. If someone important came, let's say like the president came, we would go to meet the president. We, it was very close to the Sapo community. We had a funeral, everybody contributed, and... Um, it was actually nice in those days. Like you came, you felt welcome. And there was a lot of people informing you what to do, where to go, how to get a job um, and all of that. But over time, that was dying out because people find found better opportunities outside New York. Uh, they moved to, you know, um, other states where it's, you know, better to raise kids, um, better jobs maybe. I don't know, big houses and stuff yeah. but overall it was great you, you know you know what was interesting and this is more for the people who are part of the concrete pastures family as so i'm sharing this information as, as to what um you know Malenwa just said i actually uh, never shared that <laughs> I, I know but but what i'm sharing with what, what i'm saying is that like what you just shared with us right now is what in my podcast we call the transnational experience uh, and that, right, in terms of my research, so my, my podcast was supposed to be a product of me translating my research into the concept of transnationalism into like layman's term. That was what my goal was initially was to mm. take it and say, okay, I do a lot of research with terms of transnationalism and, and, and black immigrant communities and health. And, but I, this concept of transnationalism and immigration and the immigrant experience, what is it and why is it so important? But using all the academic terms, I felt like wasn't going to be a good way to disseminate information for people who don't do academic research. It's for the day-to-day people who do this and don't even realize they're doing it. So what you explained was transnational because you just mentioned how everybody in your in the community before they grew apart in a co-trader, whatever the case may be, you did everything that was very reminiscent of home even though you are in the U.S., right? You did everything that you can to sustain your culture and what makes you all Zambian, the food, the birthday parties, even the way you party, right? Being able to create that home away from home and that resistance to truly acculturating to the American life, not doing parties the American way, but doing the design, that idea of being able to hold on to your culture in a new land and you still talk to your family back home, you still go back home, all of that is the transnational experience. And that's what, you know, shows the, the high-end value of what it means to be Zambian and why you don't want to just fully let that go because that's a major piece of who you all were or are. So I just wanted to share that for those who are like, what does it mean my Black is transnational? What your host just shared is 
exactly what I was looking for. And that's why I'm glad to be able to talk with her. What got you into transnational? The transnationalism. Um, so what got me into it was, was actually based off of, I was in doing my master's in 20, say about 2012, I was finishing, I was doing my, my, um, my master's thesis. Uh, 2012 in the University of Illinois, Champaign. And I was trying to figure out, I was doing work on um, water scarcity. I really was talking about water scarcity in Africa. And I wanted to do something about, you know, non-government, I mean, not non-governmental, yeah, non-governmental organizations, NGOs in Africa. Mm-hmm. One particular one that I remember called like WASH, which is supposed to be like for water sanitation and help. And I was trying to do a, a project about what's going on in Africa, but I remember having a conversation with my my uh, my advisor, good man, Dr. Reginald Austin. Um, shout out to Dr. Austin, and we were talking, and he just started asking me about me, like my experience, and he was asking me about me growing up, similar to what you're doing here, but just talking about my experience with my family, my mom, and I realized in the conversation, he kind of pointed it out. He's like, he's like, you kind of are tapped into the African and you're also Americanized. So he's like, how does that work for you? And we, so in the process of me talking about this with him, I realized that I, we, I have something unique and I wanted to really delve into it. And so as I continue to dive into the idea of what it is to go back and forth, like why do Africans or even immigrants in general have this ability to go back to their home country, you bring what you you bring whatever you want from your home country. You can take whatever you want from your new country. You create this bridge. And is this unique or is this something everybody does? And so I realized that in the, when I was doing my research that this situation only is being published more when it comes to the Latinx community and some parts of the Asian community. I didn't really talk about it in the Black community. And it was because there's this tension, this this this. There's tension that exists in the black community overall, but they don't also do enough research to show that African immigrants and African Americans are different. And so for someone like me who's experienced both cultures and is in um, integrated in both worlds, I felt like we have a bridge, but most of us don't talk about it. We just do it. The Africans just do it. They don't even know what they're doing. And, you know, the um, African Americans have no idea that they have an opportunity to be able to reconnect back home. So I felt like in my process, I started building on not just caring about African immigrants, but caring about this ability that they have by choice. Because you can come to a new country and say, you know what, I don't want nothing to do. I don't want anything to do with Nigeria anymore. I don't want anything to do with Zambia anymore. You can come and make that choice. But some people come and you still choose to call your your parents, you call your aunties and uncles to send money, to send clothes, to travel, to see, so they can see you and bring gifts because you don't travel empty handed. You know this. So you travel with gifts, right? Your two luggages, whatever the case may be. So that idea is, is by choice. And, but how does this, these choices we make influence our health, our stress, our ability to eat, our ability to engage in physical activity? Being an immigrant can be hard. Having been away from my home country for over 20 years has allowed me to experience these hardships firsthand. Throughout my journey, I've had a lot of challenges that were hard to bear. Juggling adjustment to a new country, obtaining my immigration papers, getting married, having children, establishing my career, and finding time for myself. Even though I've always had faith, 
I also relied on therapy, which gave me the tools to cope with the issues life brought me. My fellow dreamers, let's remove the stigma around therapy and normalize seeking help with today's sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. Go to betterhelp.com slash pastures for 10% off your first month of therapy with BetterHelp and get matched with a therapist who will listen and help in as little as 48 hours. We're influenced by home. So how did that play a role in our behavior here in the United States? And that's how I started off, you know, my research agenda. And I grew from my, my to my doctoral um, dissertation and the work that I've published in, in articles now. But then, I, like I said, I wanted to take all of that and translate it to some in a way that people who don't care about my academic publications, how can we still have this conversation so that you realize that what you're doing, what you're doing on a day-to-day basis within your immigrant experience is a transnational activity. But then how can you take your transnational ability to be able to now build a bridge that connects not just uh, fellow African immigrants, but how do we now bridge the gap between African Americans and African immigrants so that they can also be connected back home? if they choose to, just like we choose to come over here. So, or some people don't because they're refugees. So I want to be conscious of that. But, um, you know, for those who are voluntary immigrants, who that choice you make to be able to go back and stay connected to home, how do we leverage that to be able to have the best of both worlds? So that was ultimately the gist of what my podcast and the, the transnationalism was. And that's where my passion lies uh, when it comes to the conversation about immigrants and immigra- immigration and immigrant experiences. So basically the bridge. Yeah, that's that's the symbol. The symbol is the bridge. Um, being able to connect, but also because my philosophy is that there are many people historically, especially when we talk about the African-American community, which I want to talk about more with you, but the African-American communities, uh, some were forced, their ancestors were forced to migrate to the United States. Um, when we talk about slavery, um, there were people who were forced slaves who had no choice but to migrate, but now you have an ability to be able to build a bridge that connects you back to the land where you were taken from forcefully, right? So then that bridge, I believe, is transnationalism. It doesn't have to be a one-way thing. It could be two ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like African immigrants who come here, you choose when you want to be this and when you want to be that. You choose when you want to go home for this. And I want to create that opportunity to be able to now unite all Blacks as best as possible um, to give them that opportunity to be able to reconnect back home, but still also understand that historically you built, your ancestors built this nation too. So you don't have to lose your rights to benefiting what this land offers, but you also have a home that you were taken from that. You also have people there who want you home, who want to embrace you. So let's take advantage of that too. And let's be able to do both if we can to, to, you know, maximize our ability to thrive. So that that's the goal. That's the gist. Okay. So I asked this question to um, one of our guests. He's into bridging the gap between the Africans and uh, the African American, mm-hmm. just showing the culture and he's in his own way. Mm-hmm. It's similar, same thing, Pan Africanism. Um, 
my question to you is mm. how are you bringing us Africans with African Americans together because there's this invisible beef yeah a lack of a better word there's just yeah. this invisible yeah. beef yeah. that's there that Africans are feel superior or African Americans feel some type of way that Africans are here and you don't really belong here and mm-hmm. similar to the Africans it's like okay we belong here you came and you, you know you've built all of this for us so we've come mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. are you um I guess bring everybody together to have that understanding that we are all one people yeah. at the end of the day it's through conversations, it's through this my platform, but it's also through new um, ideas and initiatives that we're trying to take. So the first thing is like talking about conversations, because of my ability to kind of go and blend in bold cultures, I'm married to an African-American woman, you know, I so I have family that's that. But even even in being here, as you know, when you when you earlier asked about my immigration experience, that was a huge part of it too. Really, I'm a huge history buff, and so when I was younger, I used to read a lot of history books. And so I, compared to most African immigrants, if not all, but some, um, I really took a lot of time to read about the history and stumbled upon learning about Black history which wasn't something that I learned a lot in school. But it was just me being in a library, going to the library all the time. So I learned about a lot about Black history and really immersed myself in understanding that. And so I grew a level of not just empathy, um, but also understanding of the plight of African-Americans. And so it was easy for me to be able to already because I'm, I look at the way I talk, the way I was able to code switch. So I understand black culture. And so I'm able to utilize my agency in both worlds, right? Because many of us who identify the way I do kind of find themselves in a situation where they're too African to be American, too American to be African. And because we find ourselves in the middle, we tend, I kind of leaned into it where it's like yeah but i can be able to now bring in both worlds and because we can have a conversation and you can start to realize that if you don't have this conversation your kids your kids kids at some point right you can't avoid it (laughs) you can try but you can't avoid the acculturation of what your kids your your descendants will be years years when you're gone so the easiest thing we can do is try to have these conversations. So I try to have conversations on my on my podcast. I bring in people who are African-Americans who can speak and share their perspectives on the African immigrants and vice versa. Um, but another thing that we're doing and my wife and I did is that we started a nonprofit organization called Transnational Bridges. And one of the things that we're working on doing now is trying to create um, events and uh, special projects where we can be able to have a platform where real conversations. I had a podcast episode and a word that was used that still resonates with me is reconciliation. And so we, there needs to be a reconciliation that occurs between both groups. And so my goal is to be able to not force it to happen, but be able to let you all realize that African-Americans and African immigrants, this invisible beef is almost like two it's almost like two twin sisters who were told 
rumors about each other, but never confronting themselves about it. You've been gossiping about people, been gossiping about you to each other, and you've been believing the gossip. They tell you, oh, this, you're this, you're this, and you just believe it. And because of that, now you don't like each other, even though you all are in the same space. You're from the same home. You're from the same village. But now somebody told you that your sister did this or your sister said you're this and you believe it. And then you two, you're telling other other people are telling you that your sister's this and your sister's that and you believe in it. And so why can't we just come to the same forum and have this conversation? And so I try my best to create opportunities to, if not share information, share um, resources, media, whatever the case may be, where people can realize that we're the same. We, our culture is not as different as you think because there are many people who were taken from their home in Africa who really did whatever they could in some way, shape, or form and even died with it yeah. to make sure they held on to some aspect of what made them African. Despite whatever was done to them, they still held on in some way, shape, or form and it was passed on. And even though people may feel like it's watered down, it's still some remnant of where they left or where they were taken from. So... I try to show that. And I think in my own marriage, I, I see the parallels. When I talk to my um, my father-in-law and we talk about his upbringing in the South and start to see the way the food and some of the things they did, it's 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 not that far off than, than we make it. So there are different ways in which we can go about it, but it has to be reconciliation that occurs. Listen, I, I applaud you for the work you're doing because I think it's a tough project yeah. that you are on. <laughs> it's, it, it's a needed mission that you, you are doing. But reconciliation? What are your thoughts? I, I want to know. I, I can't wait just for that to happen. Because mm. in my brain, I'm just like, I don't know how that's going to happen because some people are going to be feeling some type of way. I'm like, okay, why should we? Mm. There's nothing that has happened. Yeah. So in your perspective... The idea of reconciliation mm. seem realistic to you. It it does in some levels, but I don't need it really. I don't need it because it's not everybody. I've again, I've met lovely people in my line of work. I meet people from all over the world, and I think in a way I was prepped to be on this stage because of that. So for me to have reconciliation, I don't really need it because it's not all of um, African-Americans that have have done this. Right. So I don't really need it. And, and neither should they want it from us, honestly. Because not everybody has done anything to them except America itself. Yeah. I mean, you know, so there's a, there's a, I don't know, there's an interesting documentary that I would recommend you watch. And it's just, it was one that actually was very powerful because I actually had the, the producer on show this season. Um, it's called um, Bound and it's by a woman named from Kenya named Perez Awino. And it's interesting because, you know, when you share some of your perspective, she landed um, in the U.S. and and she did a project in in, in New York City, I, I believe. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's, it's it's available. I think it's on like on YouTube or something. But it's it's, it's what's the name Bound. of it? It's called Bound. B O U N D. African American. It's a very rich um, documentary. Very good. Just I watched it. Both sides and, and and that that idea of reconciliation was one that came up um, to me again. Uh, just just seeing that. But like so. Would you, how do you, you mentioned your daughter 
going back to Zambia. And I know that you have, you know, your, your kids. How much does that mean to you to be able to have them be able to, especially, I don't know if they were born here, but they're born here. Yeah. Born here. So how much, how important is it for you to be able to make sure that they know where their mother's home is? Oh yeah, it, it, it's imperative that they connect to where I'm from, so this way they can also understand me, mm. what, how I behave, how like just in the way that I move, they can understand as to why mom is like this. Mm. And I think my daughter has gotten to understand. I know she's too young, but she's gotten to understand somewhat how I act, why I act the way I act, and why I'm the way I am and for it was the first time for her to meet my mom in person uh same thing for my son so both of them had never met my mom and it was important that we went home and they got to meet her they got to connect with their cousins my sisters um it, it was just beautiful it, it, it was beautiful, but it's important that they know the culture. They, I'll, I'll make it a point now. They never complained, not even one day. They actually would never didn't want to come back. So it was a positive uh, trip. I'll make it a point now for us to go back every now and then just to make sure that they keep that connection, the bridge, <laughs> the transnational. So they're now transnational. Yeah. <laughs> But I want. But I know you may have some more questions. I just I, I want to hear if you have any more. How are you keeping the culture in your home? I know um, you are busy. You married to an African American. How are you keeping your Nigerian culture uh, alive in your home? Yeah, it was. Um, I was fortunate enough to marry someone who was open-minded, and she never. My wife, when we met never really encountered or knew or I even say dare I say cared about like the African she's not because she was in medical she's not focused on that she just was like she had her own experiences and I mean if not for running into me maybe she may have had a, a friend or two that, <clears throat> from med school that were African but yeah you know it wasn't something that she was looking for but I think uh when we met and we became serious and of course we were sharing our lives with one another and trying to see how it matches for the long term it was a very big part for me that was the first thing I came in saying is like look I'm like, I mean yeah I talk like this and yeah but I'm like I switch it and I'm real African I'm Nigerian so like when is can I see my mommy now you have to <laughs> you have to <laughs> oh I hear it now <laughs> they're like, like yeah so I have to be like look I can do all that talking talking stuff but when I'm around my mommy now you know accent changes and that means you two, you have to sort yourself out too, so that we can be able to <laughs> <laughs> get me. So it was so, I, but I had to tell her, look, I'm Nigerian. I eat Nigerian food and I do Nigerian things and I like Nigerian music in addition to all the other things that I do, right? So I blend it and she was just like, okay, so what does that mean? What does it mean to be Nigerian, right? And so I showed her. And so like with the food and with the, with the clothing and when she would interact with my parents or my cousins or go to some events, um, it was, it was like, oh, wow. But it really didn't really I mean, hit her until she actually went to Nigeria with me. So when we, after we got engaged um, in 2017, I think we went back to Nigeria. She went to Nigeria with me for the first time. We went to the capital city, Abuja. And so 
she at that point was when she saw the land saw the people and was like wow you know as an african-american she's like I, all my life i've always just known that you know it's white people and we're the minorities mm-hmm. you come to atlanta and you see everybody's black right it's like wow it just hits you and so it was it was a very important part for her to experience that but then of course over time um we when it came to the food and when it came to the clothing she was welcoming that when we had our children and you know my oldest made sure we were exposed to all of that and um but i also and she's still a very much an advocate of making sure that we as africans also were exposed to african-american culture so and i never wanted to like i never wanted to dismiss or make it feel less than and yeah. so in order for us to really retain we have understand that boat culture and boat cultures play a major role for where we are today and so when it comes to like our kids it's it's mixed right because we'll go to you know nigerian events and they see the nigerian food they eat the nigerian food but they also are very much so into the american culture and so for example um we did our thanksgiving because moving back to chicago was very helpful when we were in new york the past four years before the pandemic and during the pandemic you know we were very isolated so being able to retain african culture is really a product of of really my efforts but being back in chicago now where i grew up where my village is so to speak my mom is here relatives are here you know nice. they will see it a lot more like, nice they see all the the clothing that you know we just went to the tailor to get clothes sewn for them they're bringing fabric so they get to see it more and um but for example I was going back I was saying Thanksgiving being back in Chicago was the first time where it was what we call a transnational Thanksgiving dinner where my wife made the african food right just to show that she's also you know integrated or in, immersed in the culture and I made the african american soul food dinner right and oh, so wow. yeah so we switched right usually that's yeah so whatever Wait, was, she, she she made the fufu and everything yeah yeah she made all of that so so we switched our roles because i make the i normally make the african dishes and so we whatever our recipes were we just shared it with each other and so she cooked the african dinner and i made the african-american dinner and that's when we shared it with our families and they we just said guess who made it right so they had to just figure out if who cooked what and so that was fun for us and so that's kind of how we want to go about carrying it is knowing that we want to take advantage of what both cultures bring and i think yeah. that allows us to be able to um really give our kids the opportunity to feel empowered they feel they don't have to feel like they're limited to just being black american yeah. you're also you're also from this you're also from one of the the nation i mean the world's largest <laughs> like you know city with the most populated people and the most yeah. stressful the most stressful political system you ever hear of but like you know and and i want them to also see what it is being american here so um as they grow up they're very i don't want them to have that same sense of embarrassment that we kind of had growing up as young immigrants um, i'm hoping that growing up my kids will have that sense of pride that they are able to benefit from all of it that it all belongs to them and they can yeah. lean into yeah no it's it's definitely important and that's beautiful that you know your wife cooks uh your challenging foods <laughs> jello fries and oh my oh. god i can't even wait so zombie people y'all don't eat jello fries 
No. What's, please, what's the what's the dishes that Zambian people eat? Hey, I beg. We eat shima. So it's like fufu for you guys. Hey, okay. But yeah, and then um, we we prepare food differently than you do. You guys mix meat with dry fish and ah, a big. This time when I went, we now have Nigerian restaurants in Zambia. Okay. So I went with my sister. I'm like, no, let me get jello fries for my mom. So I, I went in and she was ordering, I don't know, the, 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 the same meat with uh, dry fish and all of that. I, I couldn't. I've tried it many times. It's just, it's an acquired taste. Mm. But when you eat it from childhood, I mean, you acquire a taste from childhood. For me, it's just challenging. I, I like the fufu that you guys have with the, um, the, with the one with the plantains, the one with the cassava. I just love it. I love those. Um, just And plain chicken, just plain chicken. Oh, just, I was going to say, what do you eat it with? <laughs> yeah, just the plain chicken, you know, cooked. No fish in it, nothing. Just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and vegetables. But um, New York, we have good food um, in New York. So anytime, you know, we want some jello fries. Yours is spicy. We like Senegalese in this house. I like the spice one. I don't mind yours. But my daughter prefers Senegalese because it's not spicy. Yeah, yeah. So do your kids do your kids eat African food, the Zambian food often, or is there a mix? It's a mix. It's a lot to prepare. I'm a single parent, so with my daughter, she likes the shima with just tomato sauce. Um, I, I make like sauteed tomatoes and onions, and then I'll put like some spices in it. That's all she likes to eat with the anshima. That's it. Mm. Or vegetables, if I make vegetables on the side. So once a month, twice a month, we do that. Or I'll just buy her jello fries and we can have that together as African food. But we still keep the tradition. We still keep the tradition. That's, that's you know, and one of the things you mentioned there is interesting because um, that is uh one of the one of the research that I did was trying to see how often you know African immigrants retain their traditional diets, and um, one of the things that was mentioned was it was it, similar to what you said. It's it, it would be nice to do it, but I'm a single mom, or I work two jobs, or I work three jobs, and I don't have the time because African food. Despite how delicious it is, it takes time. time. <laughs> it's day, meal prepping, day. right? Like so, it's like a major meal prepping. So that means if we're eating African food, we're really doing it on Sunday, and we're cooking the whole thing Sunday. And that's all. Yeah, that soup, whatever you make, has to last the whole week. <laughs> you know, it's not last the whole week. Like yeah. yeah, like in the Bronx when I was living with my aunt. We used to cook mostly on Sunday, and we all sit down, eat shima, fish, whatever we were cooking, for, um, that you know, incorporated with our Zambian stuff. It was usually on Sundays, and that would last us probably maybe three days into the week or whatever it is. But every day, it's impossible. And also now I'm conscious uh, about my diet because our food is not the healthiest food yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's not so I, i'm just cautious also about that so um yeah but it's beautiful it's beautiful that we continue to return our culture in our food uh the music mm. 
the music. You guys are doing a phenomenal job, though. Like, Nigerians, amazing yeah. with the music. The whole world has caught on now because of you guys. Yeah. I mean, the idea of being cool to be African um, has has definitely become mainstream now. Mm. Like, yeah. What is that? What has that done for you as Zambians? Because again, the, the whole West African dominated culture, but I think things are picking up now. I mean, South Africa a little bit. Kenya. I mean, as far as like music and culture and dance becoming more prevalent, like you know, the Ama Piano movement is more like a South African thing that's grown, and that's where that that's what the real heat is now. But for like someone from from Zambia, like what does that do now for you or your children? This idea of it being cooler to be African. Has that played a role in influence how comfortable you all are living in the U.S. now? I don't know, to be honest with you. I, I don't want to lie to you. I, I don't want to say something that I haven't even, like, connected to. I yeah. love what's happening, but has it, has it affected me in any way or my family? Maybe. Like, I just haven't noticed it. Okay. Maybe I just haven't noticed. I haven't paid attention to it. I love the attention that our artists on the continent are getting and they're being noticed and Africa is being noticed as a whole. Um, even though when they, people see me now, they all think we are Nigerian. I have to explain where I'm from every time. You're Nigerian, literally yesterday too. <laughs> really? Yes. Oh yeah, I'm used to this already. I Before I used to feel some type of way. I was like, uh, I'm grown. <laughs> like no, you know, I'm from Zambia. Where is that? <laughs> even pe- even the people that say Nigeria, I don't think even people know exactly where Nigeria is. It's just the <laughs> popularity of it. They yeah. just know, okay, you African Nigeria. All right, but they, I don't think they even know like it's the location <laughs> of the African. They have no idea where it is, but they don't know if it's West East. They just know they just Nigerians, Ghanaians, maybe. But that's it. That's. Like, could you share with us what got you into the medical field? Well, I'm not in the medical field. I'm in public health. Oh, My public health. Not. I'm sorry. Yeah. With either public way. Health. Yeah. Um. Well, like most Africans, though, there's a connection there. Um. There's, like most Africans, I I grew up in the space where I was told I needed to be a you know, one of <laughs> you already know, right? Dr. Laura Engineer or a failure. So either way, I, I couldn't be a failure. I didn't care about engineering. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't like to argue with people, even though I argue now, but I don't like to, I didn't care about lawyers either. I just felt like being a doctor was the goal. My dad was a, is a radiologist from the Nigerian Navy. Uh, he's retired now, but he was. So, you know, the idea of being an MD was like the goal. Um, but I didn't, when I got to college, I realized that I didn't like medicine the way I thought I did. But even when going through college and going through the rigors of it, I was like, yeah, I got into community health and I graduated with a degree in community health. But in my mind, I was still like, I need to do medicine because everybody is expecting me to do medicine. And it wasn't until I even going through my master's and getting my, um, my master's in public health, um, I still was like, yeah, I'm going to get my doctorates and then I'm going to do my MD, PhD. And that's how I met my wife. <laughs> like, I met my wife in the in the way, in, in pursuit of getting into MD school, getting to medical school um, while also doing my PhD. And I was trying to figure out a way to make it work. And I just remember having a conversation with her and we were in, a, in her car talking about just my plans. 
And I was saying like, yeah, you know, I'm going to get my doctorates. Um, then I'm going to go to med school. I'm going to go to med school for four years. I'm going to practice for a couple of years. And then I'm going to go back and do my PhD stuff. And she was like, wait a minute. So you're going to go through and incur all that debt. You're going to go through all that hell. And you're only going to practice for like three years. She was like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And I was like, you know, you might be right. Like, that is a stupid My thing. My old friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, I have to marry her, right? <laughs> so uh-huh. I said, because that's the first time somebody, I mean, like, I had a one of my, a good friend of mine, like I consider a big sister, always told me that I would thrive in public health. She's like, public health is where you belong. But I was like, I'm not listening to you. But it was the way my wife said it. And I, it was it was one of the first times somebody actually told me, like, your plans are stupid. And, you know, for me, that was, that was I appreciated that because there wasn't anyone just hitting me with rose colored glasses and saying, yeah, like, no, no. And it wasn't just her saying like, you're stupid because you're trying. It was more like, you're not think about this rationally. Like in terms of your life, you're stressed and everything that you're going to do. Are you really trying to put yourself through all of this just for four Like you're not going to maximize your MD. And I thought about it. It's like, I really don't want to be in the hospital. I really don't want to be in nobody's clinic. I only doing this to make sure my parents are, my dad get off my back and my mom gets off my back. But then at some point I got to the point where I was like, a doctor's a doctor. And for me, I'd rather be happy with what I do because what I told myself, and funny enough, my mentor told me when I was doing my postdoc was it doesn't matter what your degree is because especially for your parents, if you send them a check with your name on it, they're not going to not cash it because you're not an MD. Like <laughs> they're going to still yeah. cash the check regardless. So it doesn't matter what you do. Are you happy with what you're doing? Are you, are you, are you, taking care of yourself are you thriving in your field are you satisfied and so i love public health i loved what i was doing i loved the transnationalism i didn't want to let it go so and the research in it because i felt like i had something that no one else was doing and no one else really is doing what i'm doing i'm still probably one of the few people that is doing this research. yeah, yeah. I, I i think so too because yeah. when i was doing research i was like really there's nobody no, not when it comes to black. Not when it comes to black Africans. No, yeah, like Latinx, you know, Latinx community. But in terms, it's not that many people because again, that speaks to a lot of the the issues that exist in the black community overall and the lack of research that happens. And so, you know, that's that's um, one of the things that got me into public health is also realizing that the only people that can take we, we always talk about medicine, medicine, medicine. But public health in its own right, and you see what's happening in the pandemic, you see what's happening these past few years. How do we take this message and translate it in a way that our people, especially as our parents or whoever's here that's been here since the 60s, 70s, that migrated, like Auntie Kemi them, shout out to Auntie Kemi and Pansa Pansa, but like they're getting older. Yeah. How do we take care of them? Because they're still very resistant to accepting the fact that they're living in America. Many of them immigrate and still believe that they're going to go back to Africa one day. And right, and there's this this pie in the sky. I I think she's here for me. No, no, she's she's, she's a unicorn. She's an exception. I know, I know. She's not the typical. Like my mom, my mom right now to this day has been here for over 30 years. And you tell her in her mind, she's still like, I'm going back to Nigeria. And it's like, woman, you're like in debt, like for this. You know what I mean? Like, when are you going to do that? Right? You're still, you know, so for me, I wanted to find a way to be able to, how do we take public health messaging? How do we take public health practices? And tra- the only people that can do that is the people who, the only people that can do it for us is us. 
<laughs> no one else is going to do it because the assumption is we're all African American. Look, the assumption is that we're all Nigerian. <laughs> like when we talk about African, right? You just you just told me, right? That yeah. the idea is. So how do we start taking it and breaking down the black community so that you know that this group deserves this? This group needs to be approached in this way. The only people that can do that are people from our own respective community who can say no. Don't don't do don't give her that jollof rice she's not from Nigeria. she doesn't like it right uh-huh. she likes this right or don't give her this fufu thinking that she's nigerian no she's from zambia right the only people that can say that are people from that from those because when they look from the outside in they just look at us and say okay you're black you live in the bronx chances are unless we know your name chances are you're african-american yeah right? and if you speak good english yeah you're just an educated african-american right and so that we we needed to be able to speak from within um and i felt public health was a way to do that because medicine is a completely different structure that has its own bureaucratic processes and issues that wasn't going to help our people even though our people want to do that it's more so for the um you know for the uh the, the pedigree and, the, and the, the, the actual ability to say that you're a doctor, but not really understanding the major impact yeah. that it had on a day-to-day term. Wow. How do we do that for people like our parents? Jeez. My mom is not here, but how are you doing that for your mom, though? Like, how are you prepping her? It's, it's not easy, sis. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> it's not easy. <laughs> this is why, you know, we had these collab, like, like, we did with, like I did with Panza Panza last year. We had this conversation about the intergenerational relationship, and we wanted to build off of that. And I think um, that's something that we're hoping to do moving forward is hosting some type of forum that talks about the retirement and because that's what I'm trying to do for my mom is is to get her to understand that many of your 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 people the mates I would say who came to the country around the same time as you many of a that first generation they don't they came in and they wanted to put their heads down mind your business work send money home to the people who need it yeah. That's what you do. work, work, work. You send money. Mm-hmm. But the issue is that you don't take advantage of the resources that are available to you for two reasons. One, you don't know. Two, you think it's white people and not for you. It's not, it's un-African. Yeah. And three, a bonus one is that racism exists. And sometimes even if you wanted to, uh, they didn't allow you. So that was an issue too. But um, I've been trying to explain to my mom that, you know, you've been here for so long. I think at this point, it's not about surviving. You've been working, 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 double shift, triple shift. I'm trying to get you to, you, you, you send your kids. So you send your kids to go to these schools and become these high-end professionals. And the question I ask is, why don't you allow us to now use our expertise to better your life? Not just better the world so you can go to a party and say, my son is a doctor. But how can you now say, how do we leverage our kids being high-end professionals in this new world that we sweat blood, te- you know, blood, sweat, and tears for, that to give them opportunities that we didn't have in our old country, and now that they've taken advantage of it and they're successful, how do we now leverage that to better our lives as we age? How do we lean on their expertise and rely on them as experts to help our lives be better so that we can age healthily? And that's what I'm trying to convey to her, meaning. How do I get you to now understand, okay, take your home and let's figure out how we can get you into some financial literacy classes so that you understand how to understand what your assets are and understand how to take your assets and then 
you know, flip them so that they can now feed into your retirement so that you're not working at 65, yeah. you're not working double shifts, you know, where yeah. you're still, you Let know, your money work hard for you. Yeah, make your money work hard. For, and you know, you're in the finance business. You understand the game, right? So it's, it's trying to get them to understand and look, that whole daily bread mentality that you brought from Africa has gotten you far. But other immigrant groups are coming in, they're building businesses, they're thriving, and they now have wealth, not just money, but they have wealth that they can now build their generation on moving forward. And they're thriving, not surviving, right? That's the theme is so trying to get African immigrants, the older aging immigrants to, to say, okay, it's not just about surviving anymore, but how do I thrive? How can I sit back, kick my feet up and say, this is me making it after my 40 years living here, working, getting a house, building a home, whether I have a job that has retirement or not, how can I get myself to now live comfortably as I age? For the younger ones like us, how can we use our expertise to create more programs and infrastructures and communities where our aging African aunties, uncles, mothers, fathers, whatever, our elders, how can they find a space where they can be able to age and still feel like they are who they are? Right. That's that's the part, not losing yourself and becoming fully American. But how do we create a space where you still feel as African as you are, but you're aging? And it's not impossible because I look and I go to these places, these Chinatowns and Korea towns and and all over. And they have these spaces for their elders. They do. They do. So we we, and we're not. I mean, if you look at the data, African immigrants are one of the highest rising African, you know, immigrant populations next to Latinx, um, you know, immigrants. We have the capacity, we have the people, we have the experts who can be able to create a community that helps aging healthily for our, you know, older ones who came here before us or came here and gave birth to us. So that's that's what I'm trying to use public health for overall. You, you've mentioned a lot of great stuff. It's not only, I think, parents that are here. The short time I went home, my mm. sisters have been trying to help my mom. Mm. with her business with there's like that resistance into like she's stuck in her own ways and she i think that's the theme around our parents as to we want to take care of ourselves and also take care of our children no matter how grown they are and that's where it's it causes the problem as to how do we continue to help our parents because our parenting our patterns are very different from the way mm-hmm. we, we were raised. Mm-hmm. I guess uh, I parent my children very different from the way my mom raised me. And yeah. my sister is the same thing. I noticed it's, it's very different and it's almost like the same. And that's why we are able to understand and like we have to do something for our parents. But our parents are the ones with the resistance uh, piece of it. I think... Having the forums is a very good idea with uh, Auntie Kimi. And Auntie Kimi, she's more of, I guess we would say, like more generational, more open-minded as to receiving uh, what we have to to say. That will, I think, get into the buy-in of other, um, like our parents, into that. That, And like you said, I think that was a key piece, um, having someone like Auntie Kimi who is... Um, open-minded. She's very open-minded. Very, very. And she's an advocate for that type of intergenerational dialogue and learning from one another. And because of that, which is why she's a key person when it comes to having these conversations with the other 
She's a person. She has to be the mouthpiece. No, she has to be. She has to be, right? None so, of us can do it. Don't look at you. What's wrong with you? You're, Where are you you're a child. Me? You're a child. You're right? a no child. Old, what do you know? <laughs> right. And that's, and that's the thing, right? It's like, no matter what, right? It, it's so funny that you're bringing this up because um, that was one of the things that I, that I, I during this pandemic, when we did a, a, a quick study and we interviewed some younger, like, people my age who were children of immigrants and during the pandemic it was like these kids were like they're not kids but these people were um like doctors and nurses and they were talking about like how they were dealing with it and they were talking about their parents and it was like despite the fact that they were doctors mds and stuff and they would go to their parents and say mom dad this is what you need to do blah 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 and parents would be like well, why are you talking to me am i not the one that gave birth to you am i not the one that changed your diaper uh-huh they fed you when you were small. Why are you telling me now what to do? As a, like you know, and that resistance to be able to listen to your children now that they're the ones with the information and the I, knowledge. I need some magic. <laughs> find the magic. I need that because you have no idea what it took for my mom to get on dialysis. She had mm-hmm. to be almost on deathbed for her to be on dialysis. When it was starting, the doctor said she has to be on dialysis. We tell her, my sister is a nurse. She's talking from a medical position. Mm-hmm. No. Go away with that. <laughs> Literally, she just be... Because, and also because of the percept... Um, whatever, the stigma around uh, dialysis, that when you go, mm-hmm. did you die? Whatever it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So she had that in her. It literally, when she was on that bed, we did it without her consent. We needed to sign like she can't sign, so just no. do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So our parents, please, if you can find the magic, I need that magic so I can sprinkle on my mom. <laughs> <laughs> well, definitely, I'm definitely working on it, and I'm hoping that at some point through these different activities, initiatives, and programs, we can be able to we can be able to do something and, and make a difference. Um, I have I only have a couple more questions. So, so I want to know what has your experience, because we, we haven't talked about, like, I want to talk more about, like, you know, you talked about Concrete Pastures a little bit and, and yes, and the great things that you all are doing there. But what has been, and you've had some great interviews with people who have some amazing stories. <laughs> like one, the one that, one with the um, the gentleman whose father was kidnapped was really, I mean, that was a tough one that I... Oh, my yeah. God. That was a tough one. Yeah, yeah that was a tough it, one. It's me. too tough. It's actually still stayed with me. So, yeah, that was a tough one. Yeah. And, and so I wonder, what has your conversations and, and you being, um, you having so many episodes, what has that done for you as far as your understanding and just how you feel about the immigrant experience overall as it how does it affected or influence your mindset oh that's a really good question first i would say we we all have experienced the same type of challenges at different times and that's also another reason why i created concrete pastures Oh, I got into on this mission because at first I was very resistant at doing this because it came at a time where I was going through my separation and my, on my healing journey and this came for me to do. I didn't feel like uh, inspiring anyone because I needed inspiration. 
But in the long run, especially after doing season one, it dawned to me, it dawned on me when I was doing the last episode. I had two episodes that I was working on. The last episode, which was the 20, the 20 episode, that episode I wanted to do it in season two at some point. Not even like the first one, at some point, whatever. But that episode just kept coming and I couldn't do anything else. My It couldn't leave my brain. I was just guided to do it. I had written out, I normally write out my episodes um, just to get my thoughts together. I put them down. I wrote it down. I got on the mic. Kelechi, I didn't look at my notes, not even one time. That's the best feeling. <laughs> the whole time I'm speaking, this is one hour and change of speaking because I think there was like very little that was edited out, maybe just spaces. Other than that, it was everything that came out of me. And then I went to bed. I'm like, I'm not redoing this. However it came out, it came out. I'm not redoing this. But it was in that episode where everything fall in place to me into alignment with this mission. And also understanding that everybody else was here to be part of my healing. Mm. Mm. That's Instead cute. of the other way around. Because for me, it was like, I'm going to be inspiring people. Yes, in a, in, in a way, through my own stories that I've been able to, my own journey that I've been able to share, but all of the guests have poured into me in so many ways. They have stretched me in the way I communicate, in the way I listen. I'm still in the, disco in, in the discovery phase. I'm not going to sit here and say I'm... It's been a year. I'm still in discovery. I'm I'm a student at this. Yeah. I'm learning just from having this conversation with you. I'm learning every single day. I watch so many episodes. I listen to so many episodes just so I could learn. But this journey has been challenging and yet very fulfilling. And every person that comes pours into my soul in in a, in a different way and I just continue to learn so that's mostly what I can do it's, it's a journey that's very challenging that's that's beautiful I don't <laughs> I don't even there's nothing else you need to add that is powerful um and I that sits with me the the idea of thank you healing knowing that we that the people you talk to are, are here to that that's rich that is rich and that's going to resonate with me um i appreciate that, that that's powerful no, because it, it, it really god it makes me think about you know the the journey and what this why I do this in addition to all the other things my why is right and yeah and so, Wow. No, yeah. this is why when someone would put, if someone puts a comment, because if there's a lot of people out there that want to do content, mm -hmm. don't be hesitant to do content because of people that are going to pass comments. A lot of those people that are passing comments of how you are reacting, whatever you're making, as long as you are adding value to people's lives and you, you bring value in that space, I would encourage you to go ahead and do it. One, because we don't have your story. And I always was questioning as to why me? That was the biggest question. I'm like, why me? Because this is 
huge. This is bigger than me. I'm mm-hmm. just a representative of this. Mm-hmm. It's not for me. Yes, yeah, some, sometimes I would say, it's, it actually even feels weird to say I on, on this space because it's not for me. It's for everybody else. And when they come on, this is their home. I have people calling, uh, reaching out. It's like, oh, I want to come back and talk about blah, blah, blah. I'm like, <laughs> anytime you want, you can come and do it. Whatever you want to do. I'm just holding space and I'm just being guided as to where, what direction we have to go each season. And if I don't feel moved to reach out to someone, I don't reach out to them. Everybody I reach out to, I feel moved to reach out to them because it's not for me. Because sometimes there was, I think, a few guests that I'm like, well, I have to reach out to them. What? And then when they come on, I understand why they are on the podcast. Because this is, space is not for everybody. It's not. So when they come on, I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so now I'm just in obedience with everything else and just go as I'm guided. That's it. No, I love it. I love all of that. And it's inspiring to me, even though I've been doing this for five seasons. It's it's still, it just kind of reminds me as to why I kind of continue on. And so to be able to have conversations like these with people like you and understanding what you're doing, it, it really, it really does reinvigorate me on times, you know, because I got to a point where initially my first season, I was really trying to you know figure it out and just doing it as a hobby and just saying whatever happens happens but yeah over time i was like people are i mean not just people loving it but people really are resonating with it people are seeing what you know and and really seeing themselves in this and really using this as a space to be able to truly reconnect and have these conversations and have be able to share things about their experiences that we would never really know that yeah. they typically own. And it, it just became a point where, you know, I know people do the podcast and they're doing it. Some people do it for, you know, the money, the clicks, the downloads, all that stuff. And that's cool. Like, I, I understand that. Yeah. But, some, but my second season, um, I really reached a point where I was like, I'm doing this for something like you said, bigger than me. This is a this is at this point. I started doing it for my kids, right? Yeah. And I make sure that you know every season I interview my kids. I interview my oldest daughter every year. Every season we have a daddy daughter oh, talk. Oh, nice! Yeah, yeah. Check, I saw that. Listen. I'm gonna click yeah. on that. I saw that. Yeah. I'm like, I, she, I wanna, I wanna. Yeah, hear. And I interview her every year since you know since she since I started, all the way from her being you know from when she was about six. Um, seven and now she's 12 but I've interviewed her every year and it's, and that's always that's that was intentional because I want her to be able to go back because I realized that these podcasts will be here whenever right yeah. and so she can always go back years from now and be able to listen to conversations she's had with her dad and listen to see who she was then and who she is now and so it, it started to evolve into that where it was like it's no longer just about me right it's really about you all like it's really about you know so I interview my father-in-law tell your story you know my dad is coming from Nigeria in August and I want to be able to interview him tell your story because now I'm starting to think about I want your great 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 grandkids I wish I could hear my great great grand my grandfather's voice or my great grandfather's voice 
right? And so it's become a time capsule. Even though we're still talking about these transnational experiences, I realize that that's going to grow. That's going to do its own thing and flourish. And if people come back and say, hey, Galachi was talking about this then, cool, but it's not what I'm doing it for. Now I'm doing it just to be able to have everyday people share their stories about how unique their lives are and how they've been able to overcome challenges, overcome identity crises, Mm -hmm. be able to figure out who they are and be able to figure out how they're going to thrive or even what they need, be able to express what they need and how we can come as a community to do that. Um, yeah, this is why we do it. And this is this is why I'm, I'm glad to be able to talk with you. This is amazing. I love it. You've yeah. already responded in a way why um, if you found your concrete pastures. Oh, I did? I answered it already? <laughs> uh, in a way, I mean, in, in a way. Yeah, but no, have I, you found your concrete pastures? I I absolutely believe I have. Um, I'm in a, I'm in a state where it doesn't get more concrete than this for me, especially in this state right now. And I don't know what it is, what what, what the future holds, and what God has in, in store for me. But for for where I was growing up and the steps that I've taken and how I found myself to where I am, it's all been. The grace of God has all been, you know, my wife and I have a saying that says, you know, thank God for this winding road that led me to you. And it's a winding road. I have no idea. I was really, there were so many, I always think at times like I was one decision away and I didn't even realize it from a, a living a completely different life, mm-hmm. having a completely different path. And so to be here now and to understand what my calling is at such a young age, to understand what my passion is and to understand how I'm, I want to go about um, fulfilling that and being able to be a servant while also leading the best way I can. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> using this platform and using my other, um, my God-given talents, uh, my gifts, I, I, to be able to serve and impact. And so, so when I say that, you know, philosophically, I've always gone by the belief, you know, I, I believe in mentoring, I believe in all those things. But I say I'm in my country's pastures because I've always been a firm believer that I don't want to be, I used to tell friends and I still say it now that I don't want to be Jesus. I just want to be Moses. And so I won't, I'm not trying to die for Mm -hmm. (laughs) y'all, but I'm trying to be, I'm trying to lead you and open doors for you to, to see something that could potentially change the way we do health. Yeah. When you're able to feel like what this transnationalism is. Um, and what that does as far as our abilities to be able to bridge the gaps and even expound, and, I'm not expound, but expand and, and open and connect more and, and become more global citizens. Um, I'm not necessarily trying to lose my sanity and, and essentially lose the important thing that I value, like my family for that. But I am trying to be a gatekeeper and I don't care about being the best. I just want others, my, my successes, my juniors, my younger ones or anyone, my, my to be able to push it further so that we can all lead better lives so that not just my parents, but me, I want to be able to age healthily and live a healthy life and a happy life. So um, I have found my concrete passion and I'm very glad that I can be able to stand upon it. That's beautiful. And it's such a blessing to be a servant to others. I I think it's, it's such a, it's a different fulfillment that you get to be able to serve a community and give to them wholeheartedly and without thinking of yourself. And it's a gift that gives back to you. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you already answered my last question, which was essentially your legacy. And I think what you said that moment, I just want to leave that. I just want to right. bottle that, <laughs> that up and, and, and I'm ready, you know, I'm gonna let you wrap this up because I opened it up. I'll let you wrap it up and, and we can close it out from there. Oh my God. This been an amazing conversation. You are doing amazing things. Black is transnational. I love it. I love what you're doing. Um, how can we find you and how can we support you? Absolutely. You can follow the page, the podcast page on Instagram and Facebook at Black Transnational Podcast. And we're also on Twitter, kind of. But Twitter is, uh, you know, <laughs> Twitter can be a little bit uh, hectic, but um, we're on Twitter as well at MB Transnational. And um, I am on Instagram primarily at Black Transnational underscore. That's how you can follow me. The host, you can find a podcast, my black, my black is transnational, and any of your favorite podcast listening apps, just search for it. Whether you use Apple, Stitcher, Google, wherever, you can find it there. Listen to it. We got five seasons. Rate and review it. Um, yeah, we appreciate your support. Yay! And also on YouTube. I'm sorry, I should mention that we just started YouTube, so I, I still haven't gotten that as part of my like spill. But we're on YouTube now, so you can also find us on YouTube as well. The Love fifth the season. Yeah, the fifth season is on all videos, but we're still like retroactively uploading previous seasons, which weren't recorded on video. So you have a lot more audio from season one to season like four and a half. But um, season five is all of the video episodes that we're doing now. Beautiful. It's been an honor. Thank you so, so, so much. I appreciate you for this time, man. This was fun, sis. I really appreciate the collab and I. And I hope that we can do more of these moving forward. This is awesome. That's it for this episode. Thank you again for lending us your ears. It's truly an honor to save each and every dreamer. You can continue to support us by liking, sharing, and following us on our social media pages. The links are all in the show notes. We have so many exciting projects and ventures in store for you. Until next time, keep dreaming.